So, Rebecca, I thought we would read patron emails and respond to them to therapists providing feedback to our patrons. What do you say? I'm, I'm up for it. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University, and I'm also a licensed therapist. Hi, I'm Rebecca Bloom. I'm a board-certified art therapist and a licensed mental health counselor. And I tweet at rbloomatr. Board certified art therapist. I imagine that the board is a group of people drawing things. And then when they give you your certificate, it's like a beautiful painting I, that you frame on the wall. Is that is that true? I wish it was that lovely. They are actually – it's very uptight and very regimented. And there's no drawing. There's only numbers collecting and test taking. Oh, so they swing the other way to kind of counteract. The way that they are worried that they would be perceived. But before we get into patron emails, I want to go over a couple things with you. I'm writing a piece on supervision and my philosophy and the research and all that kind of stuff. And you supervised art therapists in the past. Do you still supervise people? I still do, yes. People post-grad. And... You've been supervising, what, 10 years, 15 years or something? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Long time. Me too. And I wrote a philosophy of supervision piece about, I don't know, five years ago. And someone recently asked me for it. A student actually asked me. She was thinking about hiring me as a supervisor after she graduated. And she, she said, can I have your philosophy of supervision paper? And I was like, yeah, okay. And I sent it to her. And then after I sent it, I read it. And I just thought, my God, this is a terrible paper. And so I decided to rewrite it. And I have discovered that I'm one of those people that when you know you're searching for you know, a faucet to replace. I'm one of those people that will look at all the mm -hmm. options before deciding. And when it comes to writing a piece on supervision, I can't stop writing. And yeah, until I've read thousands <laughs> of, of articles and books and, and incorporated every nuance into this thing. And so it's, it's turning into be, I think it's up to about 20,000 words, oh if I'm not mistaken, which is like a small book um, at this point. So, yeah, 18, 18 and a half thousand. Um, and, uh, but as a part of my deep dive and rabbit hole, rabbit holing, I will ask you mm -hmm. about your philosophy of supervision and, and hear what you have to say. What, you're not prepared to answer this question, so maybe you know you don't have anything to say. But what, what can you say about f supervision and how supervisors should be? And I also, in the piece, incidentally, talk about my own experiences of supervision mm -hmm. and how they varied so much. Um, so I don't know. What do you have any any nuggets to offer? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts. Um, the first is that you, as a supervisor, the thing that's been most helpful for me is to break supervisees down into three classes, kind of beginning, middle, and more established in their career. Yeah. And that the three, the questions and quandaries at those three different places are quite different. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I catalog people pretty quickly. And I have some photocopied piece of paper that's been photocopied 500 times at this point that breaks it down from there. Um, Boy, over the years, it's, it's so much of supervision now is the administrative piece because yeah. the paperwork has increased so much. And so trying to feel like it's such a treat to get to work with people on the clinical content at all, right. that's one of the things I've noticed over the years. So just trying to help people get back into the clinical box and not get lost in the details and focus in on what their skills are and what their clinical practice is, what their clinical framework is, um, is one of the major goals for myself when I'm supervising somebody. So when you're talking about the administrative pieces that are sneaking into supervision, what, what exactly you're talking about? Well, so 
like what I'm hearing often now is that people who are working at community mental health, the requirements around treatment planning are increasing. So there are these times where you're just teaching people how to use language so that they're, what they're writing in their notes matches their treatment plan. And, you know, that's not very clinically interesting for me. It's pretty, um, you know, all you're saying to somebody is do this, do this exact thing. <laughs> so, right. Uh, right. And the clinician doesn't enjoy doing it because it's so restrictive. And to right. know that all of these things are taking place just because, you know, we need X paperwork filed correctly. Right. It's kind of the bummer part of this job. Yeah. But necessary, depending on your role. Yes. If you are a supervisor at an agency, it's absolutely a job description regarding supervision. And, yeah, I read in the literature that the the rub between what you're talking about, which is administrative roles as supervisors and clinical roles as supervisors, is – uh, a bit of a balancing act and supervisees who re- will complain sometimes about receiving too much administrative supervision and not enough clinical, you know, because of what you're talking about. So that's interesting. What about just your philosophy about how to help supervisees develop? Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, well, uh, that's hard. I mean, I remember a coworker of ours once saying that all this research showed that people felt who were in a supervising and teaching role felt they had to be much harsher than they actually needed to be. Um, so this idea that, you know, that minimal criticism and mostly skill building is the way to go. Um, I think that's interesting. I mean, depending on where people are in their career, they're, feel incredibly fragile so oftentimes even if you're trying to say something kind or something that you think is helpful it can be kind of crushing to someone um so i guess i just try and help them build their strengths build their boundaries really step into a role like understanding that they're in a clinical role it's not who they're going to be all the time Sometimes they're going to have to do stuff they don't like, um, but to just really understand what the limits and the benefits of being in a counselor role are. Yeah. When I was when I was teaching, I always thought the thing that students did the worst on, like across the board, across quarters, was the ability to confront. That, confront clients. Confront clients. That yeah. checkbox always consistently got a really low score. Um, and so I would often work with people in their careers about, um, you know, they kind of got to confront their clients, too. It's not just all gushy-gushy. So stepping into the hard parts of the job. So how did you help people confront? I don't know. I would just point out. You confront them uh, yes, on their I'd lack of confront them on their lack of confronting. What's your uh, philosophy? Well, do you have five days? Because that's how long it's going to take me to talk about it. That's how far I'm down in the in the rabbit hole. Um, yeah, there's a lot of talk about feedback and providing, uh, you know, critical feedback to advisees. I wonder, or supervisees, I wonder if that has to do with your style of therapy too, in that you prefer confrontation over non-confrontation? Well, I, I will say what's interesting with my supervisees is that I get to draw with them all the time and make art, yeah. which is kind of neat. <laughs> so I imagine that the supervision I offer people is different than just talking about stuff. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I would say over – I have always been told that, you know, I'm not – the kind of warm, fuzzy woman, you know, I'm not like the all nurturing mother. Yeah. I am a little bit more confrontive. Yeah. When you say using art and supervision, what does that look like exactly? Well, there's some great supervision based art directives. Um, one of my favorite ones is if somebody is just talking about a specific client to have them draw that client, make a portrait of that client. 
And then that becomes really interesting. Yeah. Or if a general diagnosis is coming up, draw a portrait of themselves if they had that diagnosis. Yeah. Um, so there's all kinds of ways where you're exploring things kind of outside of the realm of usual talk therapy. Interesting. It's, that's my favorite part. Yeah, I could see that. All right, let's get into reading an email. Uh, this one is from patron Cindy. She starts off by saying, hi, Professor Honda. Well, it's Prof Honda. I assume it stands for a professor. Could you think of it standing for anything Maybe else? Maybe you're proof Honda. I'm proof Honda. Mm-hmm. Or prof, uh, does any other word start with prof, prefer, pro forma? Profi- hi, pro forma Honda. Profanity. Hi, profanity Honda. I am wondering if you can say some words about researching therapists. I was told that when I shop for a therapist, I should do research on them. How much research is too much research? Mm. When is research considered Google stalking? Mm -hmm. Thanks. (laughs) What do you think, Rebecca? Uh, I think that the best research that you can do is to go and sit with the person. So most clinicians offer a 30-minute free interview. So going to that office, thinking about sitting in that office – Thinking about, is this a place where I could go and be honest? Um, I think you're actually going to get the most information by actually going. That being said, once I see a picture of somebody, I feel like I've done enough. But I do (laughs) – that's the end of my Google stalking. But if someone doesn't have a picture of themselves, because, you know, like everybody does their website. So most most therapists either have a website or they use Psychology Today as their website. Yeah, There's probably other sites out there. Good Therapy, I think, is another one. Um, So if they don't have their picture on there, it's hard for me to go see somebody. Yeah, I want to be able to look them in their flat eyes – and think about them for a minute. Isn't that kind of strange, though, don't you think? Because a picture of somebody says something about who they are, but not not sufficient information, I don't think. Because, for instance, when I think about my past therapists that I've enjoyed, one in particular that I saw for a long time, his picture is not good and not inviting yeah, I, th- I think he even had a goatee, which is, <laughs> you know. Uh, so, you know, what do you think about that? Do you think it's it's judging a book by its cover too much? Uh, I, I tend to judge books by covers pretty fast. So <laughs> I'm fine with that. But for me, it's always like, oh, that person's photo is too casual. Or like, yeah. oh, they're in a tank top in that photo. Mm, they're too formal. Good. Yeah. There's a sweet spot of formality for you. Right. Or like, oh, that website is too, you know, kind of uh, retro attack. No, I don't want to go there. Or, you know, I'm pretty. Retro attack? What do you mean, retro? Like, too, uh, you know, I don't know, 280s. Or, or web, some websites have too many quotes on there. Like, I don't know what all this means. I don't know what you're trying to tell me. Um, yeah. I'm kind of a – this would be fascinating to do like a critique of therapist websites. Yeah. Well, so I'm guessing then you like the, the babbling brook and the the flowers. Bamboo. The stacked rocks. Yes. And the Chinese symbol for stability or serenity or something. That That's your thing? Well, actually, I'm more clean lines. I'm much ah. more clean lines. But – I, what I think is interesting at this point is you can really stalk your therapist. So you could follow them on Twitter, and maybe they're one of those yeah. therapists that's tweeting like every 30 seconds. Yeah. And then you can watch some of their YouTube videos. Yeah. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stalk you right now, actually. Rebecca Bloom. There's a lot. Oh, there's, there's a famous Rebecca yeah, Bloom, child actress or something. Yeah. And then the lead character in The Shopaholic is named Rebecca Bloom. That's funny. So there's a lot of us. So, uh, Rebecca Boom, counselor. Okay. Well, you have quite a few pictures on the internet of you. Uh, LinkedIn, Antioch, your website, it looks like. You got your Twitter account, it mm-hmm. looks like. See what it says on Twitter here. How am I doing? Uh, you are offering a CEU on vicarious trauma. 
you're posting stories, uh, you're posting podcasts that you and I were a part of. Okay, well, it doesn't look too bad. Yeah, so I agree. Uh, the, do you offer the 30-minute uh, introduction session with somebody, with, with new clients? Do you offer that? I do. Interesting. I do. I don't. Oh. Uh, because I don't have time for such nonsense. <laughs> I wonder if this is like, it'd be fascinating to see on male, female lines, how this yeah. goes. Like if women feel like they have to offer their time for free. Yeah, actually I find that, well, I don't, most therapists are women anyway, so it's hard for me to gauge exactly, but I do find that a lot of therapists and women in particular will feel obligated to either bring their price down or accommodate schedules and da da da. And after 20 years of being a therapist, I, I'm just, I've, I've slowly over 20 years, just slowly uh, retracted my accommodating to other people mm-hmm. <laughs> because I find that people don't really care that much. And if I lose a couple clients because of that, it doesn't you know bother me too much because I'm already full anyway. Right. And so, but even when I was first starting out, as a therapist, I didn't offer the 30 minute thing. Cause I, I just figured like, I'll offer you, you can come see me for an hour and you can pay for it. And if you don't like it, you can go see someone else, but I'm not going to volunteer my time. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to talk on the phone for five minutes or 10 minutes, that's fine. I'm not going to charge you for that. But a full session just seems like even half an hour just seems like a lot to offer somebody for free, you know? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's it would be fascinating to view this on gender lines. I would assume most women feel like they kind of have to. Yeah. But also, I would say with the rise of the internet being to the point where we feel like we can really trust things on the internet, um, the request for thirty-minute sessions has is I'm almost down to none because I think yeah. people feel like they now can get a sense. And, you know, there are, I mean, I don't know. Do you know any therapists that have, like, bad Yelp reviews or had to kind of manage a situation like that? No. There aren't a lot of reviews of therapists online because of confidentiality. I'm guessing most clients don't want to, or it's just not a common practice to review. I have a Yelp review on 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 Yelp, <laughs> um, just one, and it's been there for, I don't know, like, seven years or something but um yeah it's not very common but i'm sure it happens but i've never heard of a case Mm -hmm. it'd be nice if there were because you know then people could get an idea of their i mean that's just i mean that so patron sydney's writing and she's like you know i've heard that you're supposed to research therapists you know how much is too much research my my answer to that is there's no such thing as too much research and there's no such thing as google stocking uh, because therapists, they learn in today's world that they should be periodically Googling themselves and so and managing things that are out there. For instance, if they accidentally have their Twitter account under their own name and they're using it at, for personal things and then they Google themselves, they go, oh my God, if a client Googled me, my Twitter account comes up and shows all these pictures of me smoking pot at at hemp fest this year uh, that's not something i want out there then it's their responsibility to manage that and figure out or well something that i found once is i googled my this is like five years ago or something i googled myself and and it's interesting if you go deep in the into the pages like by page 10 you start seeing some interesting things you know and i found this account of this guy so somebody was using my name as an alias oh. in a really horrible way. It was some kind of nasty rated X kind of situation or something. And so I emailed the guy and I said, you're you're probably just using this name as an alias because you own a Honda and your name is Kirk or something. But this is my name, and it looks like it's me. So could you please change your alias to something else? Because if someone Googled me, it looks like I'm I'm a, you know, whatever this thing was. And they changed the name. I, when I Googled it oh, again, it was gone. That's nice. So, so, you know, as a therapist, we should all do that. And as consumers, as clients, I think absolutely you have every right to Google stock as much as you want. Uh, because you know that's it's it's your right to be an informed 
consumer of, of, of therapy. Well, and I've heard from clients the other way that since our field is tends to have a lot of older people involved, they don't have websites and they have absolutely no internet presence at all. And right. that I find really interesting has become disturbing to people. Like they'll call like, well, I'm going to work with you because, you know, you have a good internet presence. This other person that was recommended for me, I couldn't find them on the internet and that raised red flags for me. Yeah. So I'm always trying to tell my older friends like, please get some kind of website. Like you kind of need it now. I don't think well, it's actually HIPAA requirement to have really? a website. I didn't know yeah. That. Yeah, you need to have your disclosure statement and other HIPAA materials available to people on the internet. It is a require. It's it's a law, federal law, and, and so uh, for for instance, for that reason, I actually have a real janky site because I didn't want to bother with creating my own website. So on Psychology in Seattle, I have. One of the pages is actually, you know, dedicated to HIPAA compliance, but I never refer people to it. It's just, it's just, I'm just following the law. But so you could tell your your older friends that they're they actually could get in trouble if they don't have a website. That is fascinating. I will have to share that information. Yeah, I'm only 98% sure that that's true. <laughs> it's been a while since I've I actually read the entire HIPAA law, wow. which is like. It's like a little book, and it's written in this really weird language. If you ever have a chance to read it, it's like the strangest, strangest language. It's like, God, it's just so weird. But anyway, um, so another thing you can do is, like I said, you could – so patron Cindy, you can call therapists and interview them for like five minutes. You can get them on the phone and just – that. I think that's a pretty good way of getting a sense of who someone is. And – also, one thing I always tell people, but I just know that no one will ever do it, is after a few sessions, if you're not really feeling it with a therapist, feel free to jump ship and go to someone else. Because it happens all the time. Yeah, <laughs> but, like, but I feel like most people will either stick it out with their therapist that they don't really feel it with, or they'll terminate and won't look for another therapist because so, they're kind of discouraged by it, you know? Right. So in my it depends on the issue that you're going in for but for a lot of people they're looking for someone that they can talk to periodically for years right. and imagine having someone that you really connect with that you feel really understands you and you really look forward to talking with and and imagine randomly finding that one therapist on the first try that doesn't seem likely so I say it's worth shopping around and going through the trouble of of meeting a number of different therapists and and maybe starting over again with other people. I, I've I've had therapists that were terrible that I chose based on their picture, right. Rebecca. Sorry. And uh, and and after five or six sessions, I I was just like, I don't feel any connection with this person. And I don't even feel like they understand what I'm talking about. And uh, I, yeah, I jumped ship. I went somewhere else. And and then that, the therapist I went to after that was was a hundred times better. So, yeah, by all means, uh, you know, shop around. The other thing, patron Cindy, is to do some research about what kind of therapy really interests you. So some people really like cognitive behavioral therapy. They really like that. A to B to kind of C, working, thinking, and doing homework. For other people, that's like death. Yeah. So to just to do some basic research and understand what the different modalities are. And in Seattle, most people will say they're eclectic. But in other parts of the country, people are much more strongly identified with a certain type of therapy. And I just began working with somebody who found me through the sensory motor psychotherapy website. Um, so that's another way to do research is to learn what kind of therapy you're really interested in and then go to that. Most of those organizations have a website that says people in your area who do that kind of work. So that's a, another good use of your time. Excellent suggestion. So as I was looking through some old journals, some old uh, journals in marriage and family therapy today. Oh, I thought you meant your own personal journals. I was about to get know, really I excited. I felt like I needed to clarify that right away. <laughs> this one's from 01. It, it's actually 
I, a lot of professors at the university are retiring, mm-hmm. and as they retire, they will unload all of their old books and journals. They'll just say, anyone who wants my old books and journals, and, and I'm just such a hoarder when it comes to that sort of thing that I um, I just snatch it all up. And and I just love these old books and these old journals, and, and I, I don't know. I just – I even love it that the, the instructors will have had their – they will have signed the front oh, page, yeah. and it's like I have their book, mm-hmm. you know. Like I have Gwen Jones' books and Paul David's books and Ned Farley's books. You know, I have all these pe- – and Blake's books. I have all these people's books. Uh, anyway, I came across one today. Um, oh, and just to give you an idea of the hoarding issue is in my garage, w- one entire parking space is, is my library. Wow. It's it's just it's a it's a U shape of of uh, books and journal articles and stuff, and it's all alphabetized, which is you know the only way I can find Are anything. Are you a Virgo? That's pretty intense. No, I was reading one. And it talks about – it's an article about sexual attraction and therapy. And since we were talking oh, yeah. about that uh, last time, I thought I would ask you some questions. And so they asked – this is this was for marriage and family therapists, but uh, the questions can be asked to you too. And I was – so on a scale from strongly disagree to disagree to undecided to strongly agree or agree, you know, that, that scale, oh, yes. right? Answer this questions. I feel comfortable dealing with a client who is attracted to me. How much do you agree with that? Uh, you know, I agree. I, I just not strongly agree, but agree. Yeah, I mean, it's to strongly agree. I feel like says like, bring that on. I really want to deal with that. <laughs> well, really you are in that, but I, I you are in the mind. Yeah, bring it on. Um, here's some cleavage for you, buddy. Um, you're in the fifteen percent group. Most people were in the disagree group mm. that they do not feel comfortable dealing with a client who's attracted to them. Okay, next question. I feel comfortable sitting with a client to whom I am attracted. Mm-hmm. Do you agree or disagree? Uh, I would agree. I mean, I think that that is part of the work, that sometimes somebody, you know, you see their sweetness or you see their aliveness um, as often as you see you're repulsed by them. But I think yeah. this is my psychoanalytic training, and I really feel like it's different. I noticed this, that my friends who are trained on, in New York – this stuff is talked about way more. Yeah. Um, and so I, we've all talked about like that we feel a little bit more prepared for the kind of mm, complexities of the work and how uh, libidinal it can get because of the intimacy level of it. Right. Psychoanalysis, psychodynamic theory authors have decades upon decades of writing and exploration regarding our our impulses and our defenses and our sexual needs and and the exploration of that is much more comfortable to those people that's still not very comfortable i would say on on average but you talk to a typical cognitive behavioral therapist and that sort of exploration is not integral into the therapy theory the way that it is with psychodynamic people. And so you're going to find more people that might have never talked about it before. And we've, and we've talked about the research on that. There's the vast majority of therapists have received zero or very little training around this issue. Uh, uh, next question, Rebecca, I might be reluctant to discuss my attraction to a client with a colleague for fear that my colleague will think I am acting unethically. Do you agree or disagree? Oh, I do. I I, don't, I can't remember how that question is phrased in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> Are you reluctant to talk? Am to Am I colleague? reluctant? No, I'm not reluctant. And okay. I actually, I guess it depends on the colleague, right? Though, right? I mean, I guess but. I would hope that everyone that's in this profession has a colleague that they can go to with just about anything, and yeah. they have, and they will, and that person comes to them with just about anything, and I feel so blessed that I have those people. And this recently came up with me and a colleague um, that they had a client who was very focused on being sexually attracted to my colleague. Um, And, you know, me and my colleague, we had a great, lively conversation about it. Yeah. What was the conclusion? Uh, The conclusion was that this is the client's work right now to sit with these complex feelings that they cannot have the client sexually 
And what what is that about for the client? Yeah. What's being set up there by the client to work on? Right. In other words, allow the client to explore that, that the exploration is a critical focus of therapy that will be helpful for that client. Is that what you're yeah. saying? Yeah. Okay, next next uh, question. I might be reluctant to discuss my attraction to a client with a – oh, wait. I already did that. Uh, next one. I can be attracted to a client without affecting therapy. Do you agree or disagree? I can be attracted to a client without it affecting the therapy. Do you agree or disagree? I agree. Because uh, I can also be repulsed by a client. <laughs> yeah. I mean, these are you know, maybe in the same session. Yeah. Like, these things happen. Yeah. Like, oh, this person, they're so great. They're so lovable. And then you're like, oh, bleh. I'd never date that person. Um, well, you're in about, it's about half and half on, on the results of this study. About half of the people uh, agree with that. Half the people don't. Um, and the last one, in the end, talking with the client about being attracted to the client will do more damage to the therapeutic therapeutic relationship than good. Do you agree or disagree with that? Uh, I don't know if the client needs to hear that. Um, I would yeah. hope that you were getting having that conversation at length with someone else. Right. I, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it's a little concerning that about 29% of people either strongly disagreed or disagreed with this, meaning that they believed that, you know, in general, it's better to talk with the client about your attraction to them. And certainly there are psychodynamic uh, precedents to doing this and other therapeutic models that, that will talk about this. But in general, I would say that nine times out of 10, it's not going to be helpful to discuss that directly. So I agree with you, Rebecca. All right. Let's read another email Okay, from patron Amy. She says, I am a listener to your podcast and I am a recent patron. I am currently enrolled in a master's of counseling psychology program and I have been disheartened by the program so far. My professors are largely disinterested in teaching and I have been listening to your podcast trying to do my own education about therapy and what it means. I am desperately craving some good books to help, but I don't have a lot of faith in my ability to pick out good versus bad advice or techniques. Hmm. So my question is, any book recommendations for novice therapists? I'm looking for something more about the process of therapy, what it means, what it looks like, etc. So let's let's tackle that question first. She has a few other questions. What what do you have any book recommendations? Yeah, there's some great books. So I love Pat Ogden's Trauma and the Body. Okay. It's a really thick read. It's not the Ogden, it's it's Pat Ogden. Pat Ogden. I'm thinking of the object relations oh, Ogden. I don't know that guy. But this is a different Ogden. Okay. Pat Ogden. What do you say? Trauma in the body? Trauma. Yeah. Trauma in the body. Okay. What else? Uh, there's a, her name is Agrazarian and she uh -huh. has a great reader on system centered theory. Uh -huh. I love that book. What's that about? That is about uh, in group dynamics, but also in internal systems, uh, the patterns that play out over and over and over again, um, because we're members of systems. Yes, yes, as a family therapist, fully indoctrinated into that. Any other books? Uh, I think if you're working with kids, um, the Child Trauma Handbook okay. is a great book. I can't remember the name of the author right now. Child Trauma Handbook, okay. Well, I have a number of books that I frequently go to and recommend, and here they are. The first one is called Integrative Multi-Theoretical Psychotherapy, and it's by Brooks Harris. Again, integrative, multi-theoretical psychotherapy. To me, it is by far the best guide to theory and interventions around. It is very easy to understand. Each chapter is on a different major category of therapy, like one is on family systems, another one's on humanistic, another one's on psychodynamic, psychoanalytic, another one's on CBT, another one's on uh, feminist, multicultural. So, and... The inter and they have like fifteen twenty interventions in you know in each in each category and they say you know, you know psychodynamic people will will tend to do these twenty interventions and then they describe them they describe the desired outcome from them and it it when I came across this book late in my career suddenly theory started to make sense to me well, good. <laughs> 
if, because it is often described theoretical orientations in a way that is very inaccessible to people that aren't fully into the literature, you know? And so for novice therapists, I often will say, you got to get this, but it, it's expensive. It's like a hundred, wow. over a hundred. No wonder I never bought it. But it is, it's, it's worth it. Uh, believe me. Another book that I often recommend is by Wallen and it's called Attachment and Psychotherapy. It's, it's a long book, but really you only need to read about one or two chapters because he tends to repeat himself over and over again. But it is chock full of inspirational paragraphs regarding the attachment that occurs, the interpersonal process and the healing process that occurs between therapist and client regarding attachment. And it's it's a recently published book, so it has all the recent research about attachment and and sometimes I just read a passage from that book to get me going as a therapist. It's, it's a great book. Another wonderful book about the uh, a similar topic about attachment and interpersonal process and, and intersubjective therapy is called Interpersonal Process and Therapy by Tabor and McClure. Mm-hmm. It's a little dense, but it is easy to understand and, again, chock full of stuff, and I use it for inspiration. It really helps you understand, I think, psychodynamic, interpersonal, intersubjective, object relations, attachment-oriented relational therapies. It really helps you to get what that stuff is all about. And it really, he's really, he really, I actually have communicated with the author, Tabor, and, uh, and I think he's just a brilliant writer and, and he's, he can really translate things, very complex things to people very very well. And the last book I recommend is by, I think his name is Michael Kahn, and the book is called Between Therapist and Client. Mm-hmm. And again, it's it's again about that relationship between therapist and client, but this book is is a short book and it's written very it's very easy to read. You could probably read it in an afternoon. It's very it's not like the other books where it's just like dense, you know. It's just kind of like let's talk about the relationship. You know that feeling when blah blah blah, you know, it, it's very uh, accessible. So, uh, those are the four books. Integrative Multi-Theoretical Psychotherapy by Brooks Harris, Attachment and Psychotherapy by Wallen, Interpersonal Process and Therapy by Tabor and McClure and Between Therapist and Client by Michael Kahn. The Tabor and McClure book is also over 100 bucks, but there are older editions that I think are cheaper. The But the Kahn book and the Wallen book, I think, are not too expensive. All right, let's go on with the email here. Right. She, patron Amy, says, While I have attended therapy myself for almost two years, when I imagine sitting down with my first client, I have no idea mm-hmm. what I would say and where to start. Mm-hmm. Uh, any Any comments to that? Take a deep breath. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, where you're going to go be a therapist, just kind of sit there for a minute and just imagine that your client is probably as equally nervous about coming in and ask about a fifth of the questions that you were planning. And it's okay if there's periods of silence. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd say that those early sessions are so hard, but really, if you can just Stay calm and focus on your breathing and remember that, you know, you're there to do no harm and that most people are just really looking for someone to listen to them. Yeah, that's basically what I say. Uh, what I tell people is two things. One is, is if you can manage to sit in the chair and not run out of the room screaming, then you have succeeded because that's how I considered it when I, when I had my first 10 or 20 sessions was my heart is pounding so hard as long as I don't freak out and, you know, go crazy, then I will have, I will have won the day. The second thing is that I tell people is just what you said, which is people just want to be heard. And so because, because interns prior to becoming an intern, you know, they're in graduate school, they're learning all these ethics and theories and techniques. And they think that they have to somehow, integrate all that in the moment in their first session with their first client and and really transform things within the first couple minutes of their first session. And what I tell people is that's ridiculous. That'll never happen. And then two is if, you know, what I ask them, I say, can, can you listen to somebody? Mm-hmm. I say that. I say, do, are you confident that you can listen 
to somebody and convey that you are understanding what what they're saying do you feel confident in that and they're like yeah absolutely i can i've been doing that since i was you know old enough to listen and i say then just do that do nothing else other than nod your head and reflect that you understand what they're saying do nothing else if you happen to do something else then then that's icing on the cake but but really just listen there is a beautiful video of oprah winfrey interviewing the buddhist monk trick nanha about what active listening is and i would suggest to this patron tracking down that video and watching it um, and just kind of learn, beginning to think about sitting and witnessing um, and slowly, you know, have a goal of two or three times a session, adding in interventions and thoughts. Um, one of the things I do a lot for clients is just reframing what they've said to me. And a lot of people find that really profound. So this idea that like you have to say something amazing or earth shattering or the client has to come to catharsis that happens so rarely. <laughs> so much of the work is just people feeling witnessed. Yeah, exactly. She goes on to say, I have really enjoyed your podcast. It has helped me through this first year at school. A lot of my professors are largely dispassionate or callous about their clients. And this helps me have faith that there are therapists who genuinely care deeply about their clients. I was worried the profession broke people and made them callous. I was in class the other day, and my professor was describing his client. He was explaining that she was a super nasty person who had isolated every single person in her life by being so horrible. He then gave a humorous example of her being self-centered, horrible, and nasty. He said she was super suicidal because she felt so lonely because no one in the world loved her. Then he said, and she was right. And then he laughed, and then he just moved on. Now – Maybe I'm too hyper about this because he is hopefully not like that with her, but I had just listened to your podcast on borderline personality disorder, and I was feeling super sad for his client. By the way, please don't mention where I am from or my last name if you talk about this because I don't want to be dragged into the dean's office for slandering the school. Uh, that's that's uh, As always, emailers, when you email in, I will uh, by default not say your last name and if your first name is quite unique i won't say your first name and if i believe the email would harm you in any way i don't say your name at all or i'll change aspects of it to mask your identity but rebecca what do you think about what she's saying here? well i know people who've changed schools i mean if you're that miserable and it feels like that bad of a fit um you know you're paying a lot probably, I guess, depending on where you are in the world, maybe you're getting this for free. But if you're in America, you're going $150,000 in debt. So I would hope that you were at least getting something out of it. And that, you know, maybe it's time to, I would say, change programs, if everything feels that awful. Yeah. Um, also, a lot of times the professors that you have are really poorly underpaid adjuncts. <laughs> so sometimes... Um, you know, people aren't bringing a hundred percent. Uh, and I would really hope that she finds an internship where she can connect to her supervisor. Yeah, I agree with that. You can also tell the program how you feel. Like Rebecca said, you're paying a lot of money and all like the other, very least you're paying a lot of time and programs are ethically supposed to respond to feedback and what you're saying is absolutely a justifiable complaint uh, hopefully they have an anonymous way that you can provide uh, complaints but my guess is is that if they're therapists even if they are seemingly a little burnt out or a little uh, you know not so self-aware if you said something direct i mean Imagine in class, you raise your hand and say, and I've actually heard people say this, not to me, but I've, I've been a student in classes while a professor is doing this, and, and brave students will raise their hand and say something like, it, it kind of sounds like you're, you have an issue with this client, or it, I don't know, it sounds like you don't really care about this person, and it, it sounds like you don't have a lot of compassion, for, or something along those lines. Professors that hear that should respond quite uh, understandingly to that I, if i would have a hard time believing that a therapist even again a burnt out therapist or someone that 
I don't know, just is having a hard time with a client. I, and I have a hard time believing that they would say, get out of my class. You're kicked out. You know, I, uh, it's, you know, we're all adults here and you should, you absolutely have the privilege and the entitlement to say something. So, so, you know, give feedback. The, the other thing I'll say is that what you're talking about is, is, is fairly common yeah. in my experience. It is shocking to see and I'm glad it shocks you because some people it doesn't shock them it's like oh yeah of course let's let's badmouth our clients and and I've seen basically what happens is it's a stressful job and people aren't all at the same level of self-awareness or have the same level of compassion for other humans or have been given the same amount of compassion throughout their own lives and they don't have as much compassion to give back to the world. And they start to become negative and they that just festers and then they find other negative people to talk to and before long they're in this echo chamber of negativity and it's this weird loop where they're providing bad care to clients and the care is not going well naturally, and the clients are responding badly to it, and then the therapist goes home, and as a way of defending themselves against their low self-esteem because they're being a terrible therapist, they blame the clients, and maybe their marriage is falling down the tubes, and so they're like, you know, yeah, my clients, you know, so there's all this negativity around it, and then they come into a position of power like an instructor at a university, and they, they sort of let all that out because they have a a lot of things to process and they're suffering and they've lost perspective and they just, you know, they're struggling. And I see this frequently, uh, particularly at agencies. I have gone to agencies as an employee or as a consultant or something, and I'll sit around the table of, of other clinicians and, you know, they'll, they'll say, Oh, they'll have nicknames for, mm. for clients that they don't like, you know, Oh, you know, the, the borderline woman's back and she's, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and I, and it always just breaks my heart because people, as I say to my supervisees frequently, people come to therapy because they have problems. They don't come to therapy because they don't have problems. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> they come to therapy because they have problems, and some of those problems have to do with sensitivity to interpersonal stress, which makes those people get angry sometimes and, and unfairly angry. But you're the professional, and you can conceptualize it, and you can drum up compassion, and you can get support. And Rebecca, you talk a lot about vicarious trauma and compassion fatigue which is real and should not be shamed by any means but if you're an instructor uh, and you're teaching a class and you're engaging in a long conversation about making fun of someone who is suffering from borderline then I think you're beyond what I would say that the normal uh, range of of, uh, difficulty there yeah so I see it a lot and the the only thing I can the the thing I do is one I don't participate in it. If if it, it it's very tempting when the group is laughing at a client to to go along with that. The other thing I do is when I'm brave enough, I'll say something like, "It sounds like people are a little burnt out on this, or pe- people feel some stress in the room." You know, just kind of call it out. The other thing I do as an instructor and as a supervisor is when I see supervisees moving in that direction or in a group format, I will put an end to it. You know, I'll say, you know, and there's subtle ways of doing it. It's like, well, okay, let's, you know, let's be nice. They're, they're suffering, you know, so I'll, cause it's, there's nothing wrong with joking around, at, you know, when you're in a group of therapists, there's nothing wrong with being like, oh, let's, let's, let's make some jokes. And, <laughs> and sometimes that involves at the client expense. And a little bit of that uh, within reason, given the context, I think can be okay. But, but sometimes again, it starts to cascade. And as a, as a leader of those groups, I will, I will, I won't shame people for it. I'll just say, you know, Hey, well, you know, this client's probably suffering and let's, uh, let's try to be nice to them. Or, you know, I'll just say something like that. And, I find that people really take to that. And I've actually had students and supervisees come up to me afterwards and say that they really appreciate it when I do that because it, to them it hurts them to hear 
other people making fun of clients as well. And also that um, you know your professors can be wrong or not have the latest information. Like this person might have been trained when borderlines were seen as an unsolvable problem. Right. And they might see their behavior and what they're doing is totally normal. So the example I give is um, when I was in my graduate program, my the person that was teaching um, child development and adult development was obsessed with teenage pregnancy and how wrong it was and would just go off about how it was the most selfish thing in the world. And at the time, I was like, I don't think that's right. <laughs> Like I can just tell in my gut that, like you know, I mean, I don't, I don't think we should be thinking that or focusing on that. Or if somebody came into our office who happened to be a teenager who was pregnant, I don't think the best thing to do would be like to judge them and shame them. But I, is that what the professor was saying to do? Uh, she would say things like, "People who get pregnant as teenagers are the most selfish people in the world." Wow. And this is in a developmental class, right. so. I could tell in my heart, like, that wasn't right. Yeah. But, you know, I was busy, and I didn't have the time to, like, really think about it or look into it. And later, I found different theories on teenage pregnancy. Like, people are, you know, most often it happens in communities under stress, and people are trying to repopulate that community, and all kinds of issues around attachment. And, you know, actually, biologically, it's supposed to happen. That's when we're supposed to have babies, when we're really young and fertile. Um, so I later was able to get better language on it. And so I think that's actually one of the parts of this field is that if you are studying with somebody and it feels really off to know that eventually you'll have the time and the space to correct that and be able to surround yourself with people who view the world as you do. Um, I mean, another example is I was trained in a really psychoanalytic program and I didn't understand what that meant. <laughs> As I was applying, the first day I got there, I understood that, like, whoa, this is therapy for rich people who can come five times a week. Like, I I don't plan on treating people like that. Um, and so I just kind of had to hang in there. My program was intensive. It was two years. Um, but then when I came back to Seattle and multicultural theory was available, feminist theory was available, I was able to find my people after graduate school. So you may not find your people in graduate school, but you can find them later. Yeah, that's good advice. I will frequently tell people in graduate school or even before graduate school, I will say your your training and experience in education in graduate school is probably just 3% hmm. of your overall learning process. I think a lot of people think it's like, well, you're going to go to graduate school and then you'll be done learning. Or or if my experiences in graduate school aren't very good, then I'm doomed. And what I say is, is, is at, at best, your graduate school experience exposes you to topics that you need to investigate later. Yeah. <laughs> and everything that I know about everything that I know, I've learned outside of school. I've learned because I pursued it personally. But graduate school introduced me to that or gave me the basic foundation upon which I could start exploring things. And what I see people doing, even like interns, because interns will have taken a lot of their coursework prior to becoming an intern, and they look at me and they say, I, I, I feel bad about myself because I don't know how to apply theory to clients. Uh, I took several classes on this, but I, I don't know how to do it. And I, there's something, is there something wrong with me? And I said, no, that's universal. No one knows. It, 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 now, you took the course. You learned the basics. Now it's up to you to get more education, to talk more, to think more, to read more, to ask more, to watch more. And your own personal journey regarding that will be begin the process of actual real integration of that material into your life. Mm -hmm. 
And so for patron Amy, it's possible that you stick it out through this shitty program and and it won't matter in the grand scheme of things because it's only a small percentage of your overall learning anyway. Right. I mean, I think a lot of – I had that fancy. I'm going to go to graduate school. I'm going to be surrounded by people that I love and I'm going to make lifelong friends and it's going to be amazing. And I want to be a therapist and everybody will be there for the exact same reason and – you know, we'll all make therapy magic together. And that's not what happened at all. <laughs> yeah. Instead, you, you went to school and you realize everyone's insecure and no one knows what they're doing. And there's like competition and uh, everyone's just burnt out. And, no, just joking. Um, but uh, having said all that, I will say that if you are out there deciding on graduate programs, you want to be careful because programs have different cultures. Mm -hmm. And some programs have this kind of element where they have, for instance, overall less compassion than other programs do. And it can be quite a different experience depending on, on, on what on what program you go to and what profession you go into. You know, there's marriage and family therapy, there's counseling, there's social work, there's psychology, there's psychiatry and pastoral counseling. And there's, there's just all these different fields and they all have their own thing. And so you just want to make sure that you choose from an educated position. And I find that a lot of people don't, a lot of people, they, 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 they know they want to be a therapist or counselor or something and they do a tiny bit of research and they decide on a program and then they're done. And I've done episodes about this and I'm, I'm planning on doing more episodes about this particular topic because it's very complicated and, and I don't know everything about it by any means. Uh, well, any final words? Uh, art therapist Rebecca <sighs> is published on Amazon <laughs> with your uh, Square the Circle Art Therapy Workbook book. Um, uh, any, any final words? Yeah, I think that choosing a graduate program, it's a big life decision but you have done it because something in you is interested in this career and don't be discouraged if you're discouraged by one or two bad professors you know just just know there'll be many more discouraging events along your career <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> there's a lot of burnt out people along the way um but that doesn't mean that you have to be burnt out or you have to be discouraged. Does that make sense? I don't know if what I yeah. said just makes sense. Yeah, it means that you – I mean what I hear when I hear you say that is you're going to have to learn how to deal with supervisors and educators and colleagues that are burnt out and not let it ruin your career mm -hmm. and your life. Uh, it's, it's a thing in our career that you're going to – you're going to run into people that – uh, do this sort of thing and to expect it not to happen is not reasonable and patron Amy isn't saying she expects that but but part of being in the profession is being able to cope with this sort of thing is that is that what you're saying yeah it's a it's a sad it's sadly common in our field yeah right well, if you haven't already, people, please become a patron of the podcast as you can tell, we prefer patron emails <laughs> over non patrons. Okay. And also, if you become a patron, you know that part of your pledge goes towards some charities that we support, including the Trevor Project and the Plymouth Housing Group. They have a hotline for GLBTQ youth that they can call and know that they're not alone and that um, the suicide and self-harm and drug use statistics on those young people are much higher than the general population. So it's well much needed. Yeah. Yeah. They are victimized more. They're more prone to suicide, much more prone to suicide, much more prone to self-medicate. They're much more prone to homelessness and all, all the bad things, really. <laughs> They're much more prone to because of the way our society and the way their family members treat them. And so we need to do what we can to, you know, put our put the finger on the other end of the balance as much as we can. And if you donate and become a part of our community as a patron, you are doing a little bit toward that. So thank you to all the people like Patron Amy who have actually done that. That does it for this episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself because... 
Uh, you're worth it. <laughs> no, I just, I was, as you were talking, I was thinking about, I finally saw the first episode of the second season of The Flash. And uh, they're really focusing on the Jewishness of one of the characters. And he actually taught me something at the end of the episode. He ends by saying, let's give a toast. And he says the word Kadima, which means forward. And there's a famous Jewish publication called the Jewish Forward. And I never thought, oh, my God, it comes from the word Kadima. Wow. So forward, people. For Kadima. Kadima. Live long and prosper. Yeah. 